Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after nearly two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Canadian government has finally recognized that COVID-19 transmit through aerosols. Now that that's official, what improvements need to be made in Canada's policy and communications with the public going forward? The COP26 summit has ended with an agreement endorsed by almost 200 countries, but some still remain skeptical. We'll tell you why. And it'll be a tense moment when Canada-U.S. relations as Prime Minister Trudeau travels to D.C. for the first three Amigos summits since 2016. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us to discuss that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canada's Chief Medical Officer says that uh, the country is experiencing what she calls turbulence on the path out of COVID-19 pandemic. During a news conference uh, this past Friday, Dr. Teresa Tam noted there is an increase in new cases this week compared to last week. Over the past seven days, an average of close to 2,500 new cases were reported daily across Canada, which is 11% higher than last week. Currently, severe illness trends are stable, but we need to keep infection rates down to prevent increases. Well, so there's been some, uh, well, shall we say, conflicting points of view right now from some of the experts about how we proceed from here. Uh, We know that uh, there's a concern about uh, these rising numbers. How do we combat that? Are we on the right path? Are we doing the right things? Uh, To talk about all of this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Thomas Tenkate, who is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University. Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Let me get right into what I think is one of the more controversial issues that I've seen on social media over the last two or three days, Professor, and that's mask wearing. Uh, I know that some critics, uh, even in some of these uh, medical fields, are suggesting that, well, Dr. Tam uh, acknowledged for the first time on Friday that this is an airborne virus. I I would kind of push back on that. I think it was about a year ago they said that, which is why we started wearing masks. But be that as it might, uh, then it, the, the the debate or the conversation, whichever phrase you want to use here, uh, seemed to morph into are we wearing the right kind of masks? Are we doing this? Uh, and, and if we're not wearing the right kind of masks, is that one of the reasons why we're seeing a spike in numbers? What, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, yeah Bill, uh, I suppose the, the key sort of difference is whether like even though we sort of talk about airborne transmission, there's sort of two types. One One type is what what we'd refer to as airborne, what is where there's the particles are fine and they they can travel long distances. The other one is is sort of what we call droplet, what is where they, yeah. they they're bigger particles and they they sort of fall out out of suspension out of the air you know quite quickly. So so they're both sort of transmitted through the air, but one is sort of big droplets and they drop quickly. One is small droplets and they travel a long distance. And and basically you know when when COVID first started that they were thinking it was a droplet transmission but then more quickly they sort of figured yeah it's probably more this airborne so it's the finer particles they travel a fair distance and so so once you once you sort of decide yes it is airborne then that the sort of measures that you put in place for that are a little bit different to what you do for the droplets and so and that's because uh and and i think like you said you know a lot of the measures that that they've put in place are really have been around uh this airborne transmission, uh, particularly around like indoors versus outdoors. So if it's droplet, it doesn't really matter because the droplets are going to fall, whether or not it's indoor or outdoor. But once it's, but if it's these fine particles, they make a difference when they're when they're when you're inside. So so that's why a lot of the the, the uh, measures have been about sort of keeping people sort of 
outside, but also if you're having inside, you know, having uh, sort of the distancing and, and the, the lower capacity limits and that sort of thing. But but ultimately then what for, from a from an airborne transmission perspective, the actual sort of mask wearing is very important and, and it gets down to the quality of the mask and, and, and the fit of the mask on, on the face. And so like if you're in an occupational setting, you'd actually have proper respirators that, that, that go through a whole process of what's called fit testing uh, but but obviously that's not really appropriate or sustainable for the general community so so what we really got to say is what is the best type of mask and and what 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 should people look for to to make sure that it fits properly and and that that's really where i think what we've got to be start start to talk about which uh, brings me quite nicely doctor or professor rather right into my next topic of what the kind of masks that we're wearing uh and You've seen it. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious. Anytime you go out in public right now, uh, a lot of people are wearing cloth masks, and and that's for some people it's become an industry to produce these things uh, with cute little logos on them and things of that nature. And and I suppose as a fashion statement, it's okay. Uh, but how effective are those masks? Mm. Yeah, like like definitely the the cloth mask that you would sort of you could make up yourself is not as effective. For, for airborne transmission as for droplets, because basically the the, the particles are, are so fine they, they can still get through those masks. And and the other issue is that the like the fit of the mask around the face uh, can when you're breathing in, you're you're still, you know, if it if it's not closely fitted around, you're breathing in air that that could have the particles in it because it's coming around the sides of the mask. So so there, there's it's both the the, the fabric and the, of, of what the mask is made of as well as how how closely it's fitted and so so really for for something that's airborne transmission you really need to be if you if you really want to have the best type of mask like from a general community perspective you're really talking that the what they call the n95 masks what are designed for the very small particles all right and uh, i've got some of those uh, in my car right now uh, not the most comfortable of masks, I, I understand that, and I'm sure some people may have tried them like I did and say, well, I don't really like this, but I mean, public safety has to come first. Mm. Uh, the other kind that I see a great deal of, and I'm sure we all have right now, are the uh, these light blue, I guess they call them hospital-grade masks, or black, I guess it's, it doesn't matter what color, but what, what is it about the construction of those, uh, Professor, that makes them more effective? Yeah, so so I think it's, it's, the, it's that sort of combination of Again, the fit, but also the fabric, and 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 the in essence how how the uh, what sort of because basically all fabric has sort of holes in them, and but you can't really see the holes, and so it's mm-hmm. it's basically gets down to the size of the holes, and then also the way the fabric uh, layers on itself, so that basically you know you don't have a hole that's uh, coordinated with another hole and another hole so you've got this sort of matrix effect that that can that means that the particles have a lot harder time getting through the mask so so i think uh you know like what i'd say to people is you know maybe you know at, at a minimum you know I, I do this myself is is sort of have uh, uh say if you the cloth mask is is normally a little bit more comfortable so so maybe wear one of them and then have a like a disposable mask that uh, you know over the top so so basically you're sort of trying to give Trying to have a lot more layers between your, you know your 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 mouth and the outside as possible, and particularly then uh, you know if, if you have the disposal one on the outside, you can sort of you know dispose of that uh, quite quite easily. So so that could be an option for people who don't want to go down the track of getting more say more expensive masks. 
And and how often or how long, maybe more importantly, Professor, should we use these? I mean, I, I know a guy that's had the same mask for two or three weeks now. He just pulls it out of his pocket every time he's going into the grocery store. I, I, I told him on the weekend, I said, I don't think that's really working for you. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not so sure it's like surgical gloves where as soon as you finish whatever it is, you take them off and throw them out. Uh, is there a, a, a happy medium here as to how long these things can be effective and when we should use a fresh one? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it definitely depends on you know the what it's made of and whether or not whether or not it can be uh, laundered. Uh, you know, what, what I'd say is uh, you know sort of if you've been out and it also depends on how long you've been wearing it too. So, like mm-hmm. say for 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 us and my family and with my kids, you know, we we they're they're wearing the cloth mask, but but every day we're uh, you know every time they go out they change it and we we have a sort of laundering schedule where we make sure that they are. Uh, they, they get laundered and and then uh, you know uh, if we're sort of going to be out in public a bit more you know we'll we'll also put the uh, the disposable mask over the top so so I think you know that that's that's the way we're sort of trying to handle this but uh, yeah definitely uh, you know I think people need to be a little bit more cautious about the the quality of the mask and how it's fitting uh, because you know at, what we're seeing is that you know the case numbers are starting to go up uh, with the colder weather people will be sort of more inside a lot more and uh, you know, and potentially, you know, crowded, crowding a bit as well. So, so I think, you know, long, you know, into the moving into the future, I think people might, I think people have to be, you know, very conscious of, of the masks that they're wearing and, uh, you know, maybe be prepared for some of those uh, restrictions to start to come back in. So for the, let's use the example of the light blue masks, the, uh, what they call hospital grade masks. Uh, if, Mm. if, if you put one on Monday morning, such as today, uh, and, you know, go over to Shoppers Dog Mart and get your prescription filled. And then you're off to the grocery store. Maybe you go pick something up at Home Depot. Uh, so you've had the thing off and on probably for five, six hours or something like that. When mm. you're finished at the end of the day, do you dispose of it or is it reusable, even if it's that, that hospital grade? Yeah. Um, I, like I, I, something like that, uh, I, I would, um, you know, I would tend to sort of uh, dispose of it and get a new one myself. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, it, it just depends on, on the uh, you know the, the the quality of it and 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 what it's what it's made of and if it's designed for uh, for you know if it's if it's tagged as being disposable what I'd say is dispose of it you know on you know every day but if it's uh, if it's reusable then I would uh, sort of use it for a day and then and and then uh, then clean it and launder it. So let's let's talk about what's going to happen going forward, I guess, because that's what a lot of us are concerned about at this stage, Professor. As you mentioned, it's finally starting to get chilly here. They had a little bit of snow in southern Ontario here yesterday, uh, which tells us what's on the way. We're going to be indoors a lot more. So with this knowledge about uh, the droplets, uh, does it change the strategy and does it reinforce this? I I think you and I, in a previous Mm -hmm. conversation, uh, we're talking about the fact that some people seem to be getting a little lax about this, you know, just wearing the mask on their chin and pulling it up every now and then. Uh, maybe not social distancing to the uh, to the extent that they should be. Uh, are these rising numbers that Dr. Tam talked about a wake up call that we need to be more diligent? Uh, I, yeah, I definitely think so. You know, personally, you know, I, I have been. I actually went out for dinner for the other the first time uh, last week, and it was pretty clear that uh, you know people felt that you know everything's back to normal, and and I think what we're seeing is that the the, the case numbers are, are showing that uh, you know th- we're. The case numbers are rising, and particularly in the you know the sort of the twenty to forty year age group is is where the the numbers are really rising the most. And uh, and with this uh, with the airborne transmission, the there is this uh, what we'd sort of say a dose distance relationship. So the closer you are to someone, the the higher the exposure 
that you will get. And so, so again, uh, it's it's that combination of uh, sort of trying to ensure as much distance as possible, as well as uh, as as well as having a good quality, good fitting mask is uh, are really the two things that you can do to 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 ensure that uh, you're going to uh, protect yourself and protect others as much as possible. Uh, it's probably good at time of seeing. I think, Professor, in, in this conversation, to also suggest that vaccination is still a pretty good idea. Uh, I know that you know, in light of some of the the recent news and and NFL quarterbacks, I don't think it's such a big deal. Uh, that you, yes, you can still get COVID even if you're double vaccinated, uh, but it's not going to be as severe. Uh, you know, there there are obviously reasons why the vaccination still works, and we're not quite at that 90 or 91 percent that we talked about. We're at about 85 the last time I saw the numbers, so we've still got some work to do there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We've got the work in regard to just trying to bump up that uh, original, you know, the initial sort of fully vaccinated rate. Uh, then, then there's a discussion about boosters and you know who they who they should be for and, and that sort of thing. I think once we also uh, bring in the 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 vaccines for the the five to eleven year olds, uh, that that will help as well. But uh, you know, looking at the numbers. Uh, like I just looked at the numbers today for for hospitalizations, there, there's still more people being hospitalized who are unvaccinated versus vaccinated. Mm. But but uh, when you look at into ICU and the, the much more serious conditions, it's it the people who are unvaccinated for you know much more outweigh the people who are vaccinated once you get into the serious outcomes. So so I think that's still you know I know that people are sort of saying well it you know it doesn't stop you getting it, but but. Sure, it may not stop you getting it, but it's it's certainly going to decrease your chance of, of having very serious outcomes if, if you are vaccinated. And didn't we see that when the vaccination program really started to roll out, that we did see that decrease in the number of people that had received the vaccination uh, in ICU? So it, it right off the bat, I think, indicated to us that it, it does have a mitigating factor. I mean, it's just like, you know, I'm going to get my flu shot this week and I might still get the flu. There's what, over 100 different like, strains, I guess, but it's not going to be as severe as it would if I didn't get the virus or didn't get the shot. Yeah, that, that's right. So, so yeah, so, and I think, you know, that's one thing that people, you know, have to sort of just remind themselves about is that, yeah, it, it isn't, you know, it's, it's not something that will, you know, stop you either maybe becoming infected or even transmitting it, but, but if, but it will stop you uh, getting the very serious outcomes, uh, you know, well, you, it, you still might get them, but the chance of getting them are, are much more reduced. And so, so if you think of it from a, you know, a risk benefit perspective, the, uh, I think the benefits substantially outweigh the risks still based on all the all the evidence that we have and uh, you know and the large numbers of people who have been vaccinated versus uh, you know and how long it's been going for. Uh, Dr. Uni last week suggested that uh, the it's he's still calling it a fourth wave by the way not a fifth wave but it is having a resurgence right now uh, simply because of the the new numbers that we've seen in the last little while are you concerned about that? Uh, I, I I must admit I I I am a little bit uh, you know, I think uh, when I look at the numbers, they're, they're, they're definitely not uh, going up as you know, quickly as we've seen in the previous sort of uh, spikes. So so that's that's good news. It's sort of, you know, we, we had a sort of a, a slow downward trend and now we've got a we've got a sort of a slow upward trend again uh, from from about the the early November, uh, late October, we, we've, you know, it, it, it changed in, in trajectory. So uh, the good thing is it's not like a steep upward trend. So so given that, I you know, I think, uh, and, and given the sort of the, res the, the restrictions being relaxed and, and whatever, you know, like 
we we I was expecting an, an upward trend uh, to to happen because of the the the, the uh, restrictions being lit, eased and whatever. So so given that it's it's probably tracking where where I thought it might be, but but the numbers are still uh, you know going up, uh, and so I think it's it's uh, you know we're at that stage where if we sort of don't don't uh, take these precautions and, and don't be mindful of of a still you know social you know the social distancing and 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 mask wearing then we could see the numbers uh, really rise quite quite substantially professor always a pleasure to have you on the program thanks so much for your input into this greatly appreciated yeah uh, thanks bill thanks for having me again Professor Thomas Tenkate from uh, Ryerson University, of course, with the School of Occupational and Public Health. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, COP26 uh, conference finally finished off in Glasgow. It's been going on for the last couple of weeks, of course. And the nations at the COP26 uh, summit in Glasgow have struck a UN climate agreement after compromising on a cold deal. Naomi Shannon has details. Despite reaching a decision following the climate summit, many member states are disappointed after a last-minute change, which waters down crucial language on coal power. That being said, many leaders, such as British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, are optimistic. We haven't beaten climate change, and it would be fatal to think that we have, because there is so much more that still needs to be done. But what we do have now is a viable roadmap. The final pact highlights the importance of financially supporting developing nations and paving the way for better carbon trading. The agreement also says big carbon polluting nations must come back and submit stronger emission cutting pledges by the end of next year. Naomi Shannon, London. So how effective was this conference and and how impactful is it going to be going forward? Uh, To talk about this, please to welcome to the program, Jessica Green uh, is a professor of political science at the School of Environment at the University of Toronto. Professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. When this thing started a couple of weeks ago, Professor, there was, I think, high expectations and and a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, You know, the world leaders, President Biden, uh, the Prime Minister, of course, and many others, including Boris Johnson, uh, all spoke highly of, of the ambition, said, you know, the time is now, there's nothing over. When you f- get the final communique and some of the reaction to it, it, it kind of seems as if a lot of the big countries here put a little water into the wine before they finished. <laughs> yes, well, there were a lot of pronouncements at the beginning of the conference, and um, they don't really match up to the outcome. But I think that a lot of that was actually baked into the cake. Uh, before we even started. So uh, I agree with you that this is a very disappointing uh, outcome, even though politicians are trying to spin it otherwise. Uh, The reality is that um, developed countries have not kept up their end of the bargain in terms of producing the financing for developing countries that they need. Um, And no one, virtually no one, has made a pledge to cut their greenhouse gas emissions in a way that will achieve the goal of the Paris Agreement, which is to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We're already at 1.1 degrees Celsius, and we need to move with lightning speed. And in fact, there was a, there was a um, report that came out towards the end of the COP that said, actually, even with the new pledges that many countries rolled out, we're still on track for 2.7 degrees of warming by the end of the century. Talk to us about how impactful and how important that is. And maybe uh, we can do this in the context of what's gone on in BC in the last six months. I mean, all summer long, we talked about the wildfires. A whole town got wiped out by fire. Now they have massive floods uh, and, and torrential rains that are going on. Uh, do, do the people that were at this conference in Glasgow understand that, that you can connect those dots? 
Well, if they, I mean, I can't get inside their heads, but certainly if they do, it didn't come out in the final text. Um, I mean, yes, the reality is um, climate change is not a distant threat in the future. It's happening now uh, with increasing ferocity and frequency, and it's costing um, lives, misery, and hundreds of millions of dollars. And so when uh, countries say, well, we can't do this right now because it's going to cost too much, the real question is compared to what? Um, and we know that Canada is warming twice as fast as the global average. So we can expect this kind of uh, thing, these kinds of catastrophes to continue. And we really need to act much more quickly and decisively. Uh, the reality is that countries need to govern. And uh, that's not what we saw at the COP uh, this in the last two weeks. But why, why is it when, you know, they, and let's give these guys a, a bit of credit and let's assume that they had the best of intentions on this. I, I think they all you know, have, are politically savvy and they understand that there's a price to pay back home if they say, okay, we're going to do what needs to be done here because there's always going to be pushback. And we see that in Canada almost on a daily basis from uh, some folks in Alberta and Saskatchewan and other places too. Sure. But, but even when they were trying to craft this final uh, communique and this deal, uh, India spoke up, I guess, about coal usage once again, and, and they caved into it. Yeah, I mean, so, right, because, I mean, the problem with these kinds of deals, right, is if you pull one thread, the whole thing can fall apart. And that's why, uh, you know, it's kind of lowest common denominator. So one objection can torpedo the whole thing. And after two weeks of, it's not just those two weeks of work, it's two years of work that have happened since the last COP. So I think... Um, you know, delegates wanted to make sure that they got something rather than nothing. And I, I, you know, I take your point. Yeah, it's they are uh, trying to they are doing their best. Right. But the, the, the reality is that the best isn't good enough. And I think that, you know, there's a lot there's been a lot of talk about this coal, this um, coal provision and India's objection. And, you know, the reality is that Canadians produ- uh, on average, uh, consume 15 times more electri- electricity than the average Indian, right? So there are some serious justice and equity issues here. And so I think blaming India is not, uh, is not, um, it's not consistent with the historical reality of who's responsible for climate change or the present reality of who's suffering the most. So uh, I take, I, you know, I take this point, um, but I think what needs to happen is that countries all around the world, first of all, developed countries need to pony up more money. And secondly, they need to think about what are the policies that are actually going to garner domestic support so that when they do go to these conferences, they can say with confidence, these are our pledges and they're more ambitious than before because what we're doing is we're providing, you know, material benefits to, you know, workers and families um, that they can get behind and they can provide political support for. Years ago, there was a, always an argument to be made when they said, "Okay, we got to do something." And I'm going back to the days of the Al Gore movie, and and you know, some mm-hmm. people just dismissed that and said, "Come on, that's ridiculous. It's never going to get that bad." Uh, <laughs> and again, I'll refer to British Columbia. But the top the topic then seemed to be from some of the third and emerging countries, shall we say, "You yeah. can't do this to us." You know, you guys already had your industrial revolutions to get your economies going, uh, and now you're saying, you know, from the high and mighty that you now you're going to lord over us. We need coal. We need these things to get this thing going. Uh, and it, it, India, I guess, is still kind of using that as an argument. Is 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 are the countries that are involved in this deal now, especially that we're in Glasgow, are they still validating that theory? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, right? The, that the world has changed a lot since um, An Inconvenient Truth or even when the first um, climate change convention was signed in 1992. Yeah, now we have the world of the BRICS, right? And mm-hmm. um, so the parameters of the deal have changed. And it's not that, um, I mean, I would venture to say it's not that India is saying we need coal. They're saying we need energy. <laughs> and yeah. that is not an unreasonable request. And so I think if the developed world were to actually pony up the money to help them transition meaningfully away from coal um, by providing, for example, you know, um, unconditional uh, financial support, not, not loans and uh, not sort of project-based stuff, that, you know, they could accelerate that considerably, but they're not seeing that. I mean, recall that in 2010, developed countries promised to provide $100 billion in financing to the developing world. And that was 11 years ago. And still that money has not, you know, not all of that money has been produced. So, I mean, countries need to develop and sorry, developed countries need to like, you know, you can't ask for something and then be completely unwilling to pay for it. Well, that's the old uh, "show me the money" situation. Exactly. Uh, that exactly. a number of these, uh, as you say, developing and third world countries are talking about right now, uh, including a great deal of, of of input from from the African nations right now that are saying, "Look, at you can't hold us to the same standard that, uh, as as the United States or other countries right now. Uh, you've you've got to give us some flexibility here." Which I guess is maybe uh, what the uh, the uh, the motion from uh, from India was to not to phase out the use of unabated coal, but they say to phase down. Right. Uh, but it, but it, it might have been India that presented that, Professor, but everybody's going to benefit. Well, not benefit, but everybody's going to use that to say, yeah, well, OK, sure. we can relax the standards now. For sure. I mean, and, you know, there's relaxing of standards on both sides, right, because a lot of the the very, very complicated deal on carbon markets is essentially a way for a lot of developing countries, sorry, developed countries to relax the standards and say, okay, well, we're going to meet some of our, some of the pledges that we've made. We're going to, we're going to meet those by buying offsets and paying for reduction activities in the developing world. And so, you know, it cuts both ways. And and maybe is is that part of the concern here that uh, different countries are, are using different approaches to this? Uh, and you've just referenced well, essentially the cap and trade program, which some nations are still using, uh, which still allows for for carbon production and still allows for these sorts of things. Just said, okay, once you reach that level, you got to pay for it, and and so there's there's revenue that's generated, etc. But is it really achieving the ultimate goal of reducing carbon production and, and improving the climate? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a couple of issues there. I mean, I think the first is that the 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 theoretical strength of the Paris Agreement says, look, we acknowledge that different countries have different circumstances and they need to figure out how to reduce their emissions in different ways. There's no one size fits all here. And I think that's right, because it's not only about, you know, what energy sources you have, but like what your domestic political situation looks like, like what are the policies that are going to be feasible or completely infeasible at the domestic level? Um in terms of carbon markets, um, I think, so carbon markets basically say, yeah, that either you levy a tax, as we know here in Canada, or you have a cap and trade system in which um, polluters kind of trade p- pollution permits to reach an overall goal that's set by the central government, the federal government. And what we know about carbon pricing, despite what Justin Trudeau said at COP26, is that it really doesn't work very well for reducing emissions and certainly not for reducing emissions at the rate that is required to meet the Paris goal. That, and we've you know, seen that in Canada a- here, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> on average, um, uh, the best, you know, n- not the best, the, on average, um, 
carbon pricing reduces emissions between zero and 2% per year. And what it does is, is it enhances um, incentives for efficiency and for fuel switching. And so like switching from, say, coal to uh, gas or oil to gas. And so that is not a recipe for decarbonizing, right? That's a recipe for a temporary reduction, not temporary, but an incremental reduction of emissions. What we really need is federal governments to invest huge sums of money in moving away from coal and gas. How practical is that to happen? I mean, even, you know, and, and I know Prime Minister Trudeau talked about this, uh, President Biden uh, talked about uh, their goals for net zero carbon emissions. Uh, uh, they've given themselves a lot of latitude here, Professor, but they're going to do that by either 2030 or 2050, although China's is 2060 and, and India says, well, we're, we'll be there about 2070 or so. Uh, it, it doesn't look like there's much unanimity here uh, towards reaching that common goal. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem is that net zero has now become like a meaningless term. So um, what we need is not aspirations for net zero, but a very clear roadmap about how to do that. And in um, in Canada, what that means is huge federal uh, and provincial investments in further electrification. Um, that's something that we know how to do. We know that... Um, uh, electricity is a is about twenty percent of um, of uh, our emissions, and we know we have the technology to decarbonize that. But we need the money. Show me the money, right? Mm-hmm. And so, instead of making promises about what we're going to do by twenty fifty, we need to have a very clear plan about how we're going to electrify as much as possible. That includes all electricity and as much transport as as possible. Certainly, personal transport and public transportation, and of course, stop you know um, subsidizing fossil fuels. Right. That would be uh, the basic place to start. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not so sure they listen to that in North America. Uh, one group has already responded to this climate action tracker, which is a coalition of scientists from around the world, uh, says the goals are a little more than just false hope. But they also laid a little a rather troubling statistic on us here, Professor. Uh, they said the Earth is set to warm by 2.4 degrees by 2100, as you mentioned, so that even if every country fully meets the targets, a 1.8 degree rise is likely, if not inevitable. Uh, that's that's uh, rather humbling and daunting. Yeah, I mean, so that's the reality. And I think, you know, what you said is right, that um, uh, diplomats are negotiating in good faith. But, you know, the math doesn't add up, right? We are, we've already, we've already, um, we're already at 1.1 degrees of warming. Depending on which projections you look at, we're headed for 2.4 to 2.7 by the end of the, by the end of the century. And we possibly already locked in 1.8, right? So, um, you know, Boris Johnson can say we're well on our way to phasing out coal and um, other uh, politicians can say that this has been a success. But the reality is that it hasn't been a success. And we need to stop uh, patting ourselves on the back and saying we did the best we can because the reality is a lot of people are going to die and suffer because of our inactions. Is there a tipping point here? I mean, take the rhetoric out for just a second in the bombast that, that this is the time, you know, there's no tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yet they still come up with a watered down uh, formula here, uh, which I guess placates the, some of the people that just didn't want to be on side here. Uh, do you foresee a point where they just say, okay, you know what, we, we, to hell with all of you, we've just got to do this. And if you don't like it too bad, uh, it, or the plan is going to burn up on us. I mean, there's, there's a, a point here where we have to simply say, okay, we've danced around this too often. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the, you know, $64,000 question, as it were, right? Like, what is the tipping point? And we just 
don't know. And I mean, a lot of people say, look, what we're going to see, or some scholars say what we're going to see is tipping points in individual sectors. So many people are very hopeful about the electricity sector and about the transport sector, where there is increasing, you know, acceptance of the fact that, you know, there's not going to be an internal combustion engine in 25 years, and uh, you're not going to be able to power your house with oil in in 25 years. And so there's some efforts in these sectors to kind of begin to adapt to that, but it's not it's not happening fast enough. And for my part, I think that the tipping point will come when, you know, countries begin to get increasingly overwhelmed, particularly in the developed world, because this is happening all the time in the developing world. We just don't pay attention to it because it doesn't affect us. But particularly in the developed world, the tipping points will come as we have more littens, as we have more floods, as we have more displaced people, um, destroyed industries, ends of end of tourism, end of you know, more migration, either internal or um, internationally, and countries will have to deal with this. Have to. So that's, uh, that's, prof- that's my best bet. we got to leave it there for now. Uh, thank you so much for the time today to put this in uh, perspective for it. Uh, I just suggest we have a lot of work to do, I guess, is a massive understatement, but uh, uh, we will carry on the discussions, I'm sure. Thank you so much for the time today, Professor. Indeed. Thank you for having me. Professor Jessica Green at the uh, School of Environment at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Later on this week, uh, the three amigos get back together again. Of course, those are uh, the presidents of uh, Mexico and the United States and, of course, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, Joe Biden, president of the United States, is actually hosting this in Washington, D.C. A lot on the agenda. It's been five years since these guys met. Uh, Not coincidentally, uh, during the time Donald Trump was in office, there were no meetings of the three amigos. Uh, and, uh, well, a lot has changed in those last five years, including, uh, well, first of all, a new person in the White House and uh, some concerns about some of those policies that are coming forth, uh, both from the White House and from the U.S. Congress. Uh, to talk about what be happening and uh, what we should be talking about and what they should be talking about, uh, please to welcome to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. If there's uh, one phrase, I guess, that we could use that I, I think is going to override this, it's going to be uh, by America. Uh, that seems to send mm-hmm. shivers down the spine of, of, of a lot of folks on Bay Street, and, and I think probably with some justification. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, as you were saying in your opening, this, is, this meeting has kind of been a long time coming. It's been five years. This didn't happen during the Trump era, and then there was COVID, and so there's this sense that um, there's a kind of positive feel around these three getting into a room together. At the same time, though, like, they're all politicians with domestic agendas and domestic accountability. And so for Biden, he really needs a win at home at this point. His approval ratings are tanking. And so, I mean, I saw something yesterday that, like, Trump is polling higher than he is, which is a whole other conversation. And so he really needs to do what is going to work for him at home and so do the other two as well and so it'll be interesting to see how again they're able to speak to these these domestic or, or the international pressures that are on them and the things that we have in common to work out but at the same time be able to get something that they can sell at home how does the canadian government deal with the, the, the biden administration in a situation like this we're told that 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 privately uh, the prime minister and the president have, have a very friendly relationship. They've known each other for some time, of course, back to the mm-hmm. days when Joe Biden was the vice president. Uh, so that it's not as if these guys are strangers. 
but you know, when when Biden won the election, as as we've discussed, uh, Doctor, I mean, you know, the the a, a huge sigh of relief, probably globally, just said, "Thank God, our nightmare is over." And I'm sure we thought that in Canada too, like all these tariffs and everything that Trump had thrown at us. But those days are gone now. Uh, not really. Uh, the protectionism is still alive and well, if not in the White House necessarily, certainly in the Congress. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting to see how, in some ways, how little has changed since the White House changed from Trump to Biden. Like, I mean, definitely the style is different. The The value statements are different. The way Biden deals with people, the way he acts as president, those sorts of things are very different. And for us, you know, as an ally, to be able to to have some predictability in terms of how the relationship unfolds and to have the um, you know have the communication open like that that does make a difference and it makes things easier but at the same time the the pressures that are present in America are there you know and Trump was not the cause of those things he was a symptom of those things he was an outcome of those things and so in some ways you, and, and even when you look back at the changing of the White House from from Obama to Trump there was a lot that didn't change, right? And so it's, an, it's interesting to think about all of, of the pressure points and the decision points in the U.S. system and the president being kind of the, the, the person that we're focused on right now, and that's the person who engages in the summit diplomacy. But there are lots of, you know, pressure points and power points in the system that don't necessarily reflect what Biden wants to do. But then at the same time, you know, kind of will push him in a certain direction. I think when it comes to protectionism, that's really what we're talking about. There's a lot of pressure on on Biden to, to be true to those things, to make true on his promise for green economic growth. Like and those things have serious implications for us. Buy America is not a new concept, though, as, as we've discussed in previous conversations. It, it predates Trump. It predates Obama, for heaven's sakes. It's been going on for the longest time. Uh, but there's always been some some latitude when it came to Canada-U.S. relations yeah. with some of these deals. Uh, maybe not initially, but you know, upon further negotiations, it's, you know, we got some slack cut uh, when Obama initi- initiated his economic recovery plan after the recession of 2008-2009, uh, and that was beneficial. Uh, do you suggest, or do you think that there's going to be some latitude here that the, that that the U.S. is going to say, "I know this is our policy, but uh, let's let's uh, uh, let's manipulate this a little bit." Yeah, so that's, I think, where the pressure point that Trudeau and others and Melanie Jolie and, and other people who are involved in this conversation need to really be putting their minds to is, like, is there some slack in the system? Is there an exception for Canada? And I think um, at this point, signs would suggest that there are, that we shouldn't be too optimistic about that. I mean, they're going to be making the point, like Colin Robertson wrote a great piece, um, you know, on on the issue of the integrated supply chain and making the argument that it's actually better for Americans too. It's not just better for Canada. There will be there there will be costs to the Americans if they go with a completely buy American approach where everything's got to be made by unionized American workers. Like that's you know that's not the point of free trade. But um, at this point, it's a, it's a lot about optics as much as it is about the facts on the ground and whether or not we're going to be successful at making that argument for Canadian exceptionalism. I'm not sure. And, and uh, maybe the focal point of this discussion probably should be the auto industry, uh, especially with the Buy America concept that uh, the Biden administration and Congress, by the way, they, they're doing this in partnership, are doing. And one of the more contentious items, of course, is the rebate program uh, in, mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the, in the guise of environmental, you know, pro- progress here. 
Uh, the president has said there's going to be huge rebates available for Americans who buy electric vehicles. Well, that's not usual. A lot of co- countries are doing that. But it only applies if you buy an American-made car. Uh, and as we know, uh, the big three Detroit makers have all invested lots and lots of money into Ontario here uh, for yeah. the production of EVs. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, the premier here in Ontario is, is thinking this is going to be a boon to that, their economic income. Uh, but if the, if it's not, and we also know, by the way, that most of the Canadian cars, the overwhelming majority of cars produced in this country are sold in states. They're not sold here. We mm-hmm. don't have the market size. Uh, this is going to be a, a, a huge blow to the Canadian auto industry if, in fact, the cars that we were making here can't get sold in the states. Or conversely, if the United Auto Workers and the others say, if we can't make them and sell them in the states, then maybe we're not going to invest in Ontario. I mean, the the the, the potential for for catastrophe is is real. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you put it really well. And just thinking back to your earlier comments about the you know Trump and tariffs, this is kind of the flip side of that. It's not so yeah. much a tariff as it is an incentive to buy that American, purely American-made car. And so you're essentially paying this huge tax if you buy a car that was made in Canada, even if it's if it's hitting the same targets in terms of emissions and environmental protection. And so I think the key is then to say, how can we actually somehow work together and achieve common goals? And no one loses anything kind of thing, you know, but the, the two leaders are able to go home and say, yes, you know, we've, we've done what we need to do to protect our industries. And so the key is, you know, how can we sort of break down looking at it as, uh, you know, American-made versus Canadian-made and put the emphasis on how we're better together and we have that integrated supply chain that has served us well over time. I mean, it's interesting to think, too, and again, this goes to your point about the relationship between the two. When we think about how protectionist the Americans have been over time, a long time, protectionism has been a key part of their their policy structure for decades and decades. And it's not unusual for the Americans to revert to that kind of thinking. And in some ways, you know, really thinking about how to breathe as much life as possible into NAFTA and, and trade agreements, that's the exception. And if we look back at the relationship between Reagan and Mulroney, that was really the time where there was there were real conversations about how can we, you know, take advantage, take mutual advantage of of all the things that we're we're trying to to do, you know, that we have in common. How can we do things better together? I don't know. I mean, I think that the the vibe between Trudeau and Biden is good, but I'm not sure it's the same. You know, I don't know. I don't know that the incentives are there for Biden to to really kind of take it as much advantage of this cooperation as as he could. Yeah, I don't see the two of them singing when Irish eyes are smiling like Reagan and Mulroney <laughs> did. Right. I, I, that's that's not in the stars. <laughs> I just don't see that happening. Uh, but there does seem to be a relationship. And and there, as you mentioned, there is some flexibility here. Uh, and supply chain, I think, is one of the key phrases when it comes to the auto industry, isn't it? I mean, the, the automakers themselves will tell us that a vehicle that's made in Canada usually crosses the border, they say, five or six times uh, before it's finally finished. That gets this part here and then goes down to someplace in Ohio and then back yeah. to Ontario or wherever. Uh, so, you know, and that's what the, the existing policies right now. So uh, if, if Biden's looking for it out, it says, hey, well, th- we're already doing it this way. It's still an American car, that's but right. some components are Canadian. So that that's the deal they seem to strike with the Obama administration and even, I guess, with the new NAFTA. So it's there if he wants it. But you're right. The, the other element to this is how is this going to sell politically? His, his, his ratings are tanking. Uh, the midterm elections are coming up very shortly, and he, uh, he can't afford another loss here. He can't. He absolutely can't. And I think that's really, you know, where, where it's going to, the rubber's going to hit the road for him. Now, you make a really good point, though. If we can make the argument that this is actually undoing, you know, something that's really good, 
we have been going down a path of an integrated supply chain we don't even necessarily think about, you know, the difference between a Canadian-made and American-made car, given, as you say, the number of times the thing goes across the border before it's ready to be sold. So if we can think along those lines, you know, can we build from that? And can we not go down a path where we're saying we're actually, you know, reversing progress to be able to say that, you know, to, to be able to have the, the car completely American-made even if you're ending up at a point where the, the, the whole, no one's really better off by that. So well, it's, it's really going to be about unpacking the debate, right, and, and selling it. Because this, this is a sense of deja vu, because I know even when they started the NAFTA negotiations under Trump, I mean, he was, you know, singing the same tune here. I want everything made in America. And it was the automakers themselves that said, we can't do that. Uh, you know, th- I'm yeah. sorry, you know, that you, we don't have the wherewithal in the States to do some of the things that you want done here. It will take us years to build factories to be able to do that, and that's going to ruin everything uh, vis-a-vis auto sales. So uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the auto industry to chirp up themselves and say, wait a second, there's a better way. Uh, but your point's well taken about the, the existing trade agreements, including the new NAFTA that are in place. As, as you've seen, some experts are already saying that this proposal about, the, for instance, the rebates is actually uh, contravening the new NAFTA deal. I don't think they want to go to dispute resolution. I think they'd rather do this on a handshake, wouldn't they? Absolutely. And I think a key part of it, too, is, is again, like going back to the point on, on the auto industry voicing its its concerns itself, this isn't a zero-sum thing. If we see it as if, if the conversations are happening around zero-sum, then we're in trouble, right? The key is to be able to say, no, no, there is mutual benefit here. And there are ways for us to be able to move forward that we, we can all we can all benefit from keeping that integrated supply chain. It actually is the best thing. And again, I'll go back to those to those days of the, the NAGAF negotiations uh, with Lighthizer in the States and uh, Ms. Freeland, of course, on the Canadian side. Uh, a lot of the pushback from some of the, the Lighthizer proposals, i.e. Trump proposals, uh, came from the U.S. states, too, the border states that talked about uh, the cross-border trade that's going on right now. And I think it's, to your point, that what we have already is mutually beneficial. Why break it? If it ain't broke, don't, don't try to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even thinking, too, more broadly about, you know, how, um, wh- like, what President Biden's political trajectory is. Like, there's no question that, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau is not unlike any other prime minister in knowing that foreign policy doesn't decide elections here for the most part. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it tends, even if we're really all thinking about it and talking about it, and there's a lot going on globally, as soon as we hit an election campaign, there's not a lot of public debate, even in leaders' debate, there's not a lot of conversation around foreign policy, relationship with the U.S., how we're going to manage China, like those sorts of things seem to fly out the window as soon as we start talking about voting. And so when you're going into an agree- a conversation like this, knowing from, from Trudeau's perspective, like this is te- not necessarily something, foreign policy broadly is not necessarily something that people are going to cast their vote on. But when foreign policy shuts down your industry and closes the economic engine in your community, and makes you afraid for your job, it's not foreign policy anymore. Like, that's your, that's domestic. That's your real life. And so the same for Biden when he's thinking about, I mean, I don't know if the guy's thinking about a second term or what, but he's got, he's got most of his first term left, and he's not having any fun. Well, because there are implications. I mean, we focused a lot on the auto industry, and I think with, with justification, but there's so many other ones, too. I, I, I can, right off the top of my head as we're having this conversation, I know there's one steel company in Canada uh, and it's not Stelco or DeFasco, it's, they do structural steel, that does huge amounts of business in the States. They build skyscrapers and, and shopping malls and things of this nature. 
Uh, and according to this Buy America policy, they, these guys wouldn't even be allowed to bid on these contracts anymore. And you hate to think of what the implications would be for that business on this side of the border. And that's not the only one. There's many Canadian companies that do a lot of business down in the States. They bid on contracts and they win them. Uh, so, you know, that, that presents the argument. Does that mean the Americans are going to have to not take the lowest bidder, but just an American bidder? And, and is that economically feasible? Well, that's it. You know, like in, in a, uh, there are reasons that we have, you know, there are good, good economic reasons why we have free trade. There are good economic, economic reasons why you have that open bidding process that includes Canadian companies. So will there be unintended consequences if they close that? And if, you know, the, the message, like in some ways it's good, you know, it's good politics. All of the money is going to stay here. We are going to build and keep our wealth kind of thing, right? But at the same time, what, you know, what kind of unintended consequences are going to come from that in terms of competitiveness, in terms of, of the value for money, in terms of pricing? It's like, you know, the, we'll see if, if that's the way that it goes. You know, we'll see what happens over time, whether that proves to be a good idea. It's the three amigos. And as I said in my commentary earlier mm-hmm. this morning, Doctor, uh, uh, two's company, three's a crowd. It's only a one-day summit. Uh, and the chances of the prime minister and the president having a whole lot of face time together is probably pretty slim. Uh, I, I know there are going to be individual meetings, but uh, it's, it's a pretty small window of opportunity for the prime minister to not just make his case, but be, be insistent upon that. Well, that's it. And I think, um, you know, for that reason, there's going to be a lot of building on some of the meetings that have re- happened in recent weeks, like, for instance, between Julie and Blinken. And what happened at G20, what happened at COP26, like this is going to be almost a continuation of those conversations and they'll be building on progress that has already been made, points that have been made by other people. But you're right. I mean, like how much time is Trudeau really going to have with Biden to be able to get anything, you know, nailed down? I don't know if people are really expecting this to to accomplish anything or if it's mostly symbolic. And, you know, for me, I might be wrong, but I get the sense that this is going to be mostly... uh, photo op, shaking hands, hey, we're all friends again kind of meeting, as opposed to here's a concrete plan for how we're going to fix what's wrong, which is unfortunate, but probably realistic at this point. And for Biden, you know, the conversations with Mexico are going to take a completely different, you know, content from what he'll be talking to Trudeau about. Well, auto industry to be sure, but lots of other issues too, as you say, including border issues and so many other things like that. Uh, but isn't that really the way politics operates? I mean, you know, when the leaders get together, it's it's it is a photo op. Uh, you know, the the heavy lifting is done by the the bureaucrats and and the the people in the cabinets, as you mentioned, Blinken and Freeland and, and others are going to they're the ones that are going to do the heavy negotiations. And uh, the, the the leaders are basically, hey, show up here uh, and sign here. That, that's what it comes down to. But we're nowhere near that point yet, are we? Well, that's the thing. You're right. Like, I mean, those these kinds of meetings are often about setting a tone and, you know, showing that the two countries are talking and that, the you know, and, and it can send a message to people that the the most powerful people are around the table and taking these things seriously. And it, that's but the impact of that is more symbolic. And you're right. It's going to be the ministers. It's going to be the officials who are sitting down with a, you know, paper and pen saying this is this is really how we're going to do this. Like, those are the people that are really, you know, moving the weights from one side of the balance to the other, saying, what are we going to trade and we're going to be able to make progress on this? And those are the late night conversations. Those are when the deals get made. Well, we'll be watching with great interest later this week to see just what does happen. And because uh, obviously our economic future uh, is very dependent upon maintaining those relationships. Uh, always a pleasure, Doctor. Thanks so much for the time today. Have a great week and uh, we'll talk again soon. That sounds great. You have a great week, too. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University on the East Coast. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.